Sometimes you feel so alone and overwhelmed, you don't know where to turn. These days, it seems like there is no end to our problems. We invite you to connect with Silent Unity, the 24-hour prayer ministry where someone is waiting to pray with you right now. Since 1890, Silent Unity has always been there. No judgment or dogma, just someone affirming the best for you. Call 816-969-2000 today. You can also connect online at unityprayervigil.org. Practical Spirituality Positive Messages This is Unity Online Radio The Voice of an Awakening World Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually, consciously living today. Here's your host, Yogacharya, Ellen Grace O'Brien. Good morning and welcome to the Yoga Hour, a time to open our hearts and minds to the infinite. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, co-host of the Yoga Hour, and today we'll be talking about yoga in a very broad and deep way. Uh, The word yoga is actually a Sanskrit word that means oneness, union, or unity, the bringing together of our attention and awareness with our essential spiritual nature to be restored to our original wholeness. And our guest today is Dr. Rick Hansen. The topic is Be Resilient, Connect with Your Unshakable Core of Calm, Strength, and Happiness. How can we feel less stressed and stay calm and centered in the face of adversity? Today, we'll be talking about clear, practical steps that will help us get in touch with our inner strengths of grit, gratitude, and compassion. And as I said, my guest today is Dr. Rick Hansen, who is a psychologist, senior fellow of the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley, and author of several books, including Just One Thing, Buddha's Brain, and the New York Times bestselling Hardwiring Happiness. His most recent book, which we are discussing today, is called Resilient, How to Grow an Unshakable Core of Calm, Strength, and Happiness. Rick is a well-known speaker, meditation teacher, has a weekly e-newsletter, and offers online classes and programs. To learn more, you can go to his website, rickhanson.net and just note that Hanson is H-A-N-S-O-N so rickhanson.net Welcome Rick Hanson I'm delighted you could join me today on the Yoga Hour. Laurel it's a pleasure and greetings to everybody listening. Before we begin our dialogue about being resilient let's start with a moment of meditation. Let's take this moment and make it a yoga moment. Let's turn our attention within, taking time out of our busy day to just be present here and now. Our breath is a wonderful tool to help us bring our attention and awareness present. And the nice thing, it's always with us. So let's just tune into our breath now for a moment. Take a fully conscious breath. And just notice as we inhale and exhale. 
just noticing the natural flow of the breath, not trying to change it. Feeling cool air entering the nostrils. And warm air flowing out. And imagining with each inhale we can dive within. And with each exhale, we can relax. In this moment, as we dive within, we can open our heart to the essence at the core of our being. This one reality called by many names is the support and substance of all that is. right where we are, right here, and right now. This one reality is present. As you, as me, as everyone and everything. It's within us, between us, and all around us. And just by being present and noticing, we can rest in this essence of our being. As we rest, we may notice thoughts or feelings as they arise. And we can watch them as they pass away. Resting here, we feel the peace that emanates from the essence of our being. We allow that peace to pervade our mental field, the emotional nature, and the physical body. And as we close this moment of meditation, just notice that peace and realize you can bring it with you, that portable peace, into the rest of your day and share it with all you meet. Hansen, once again, welcome to the Yoga Hour. It's delightful to have you back on the show. Laurel, uh, I feel like I can hardly talk, kind of <laughs> transported by the transmission <laughs> of that meditation, even yeah. penetrating my, my thick brain or something. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, well, I don't know, I always enjoy starting the show that way, just to, you know, walk the talk, as we say, right? You know, practice Mm. what we preach. Yeah, Um, definitely. So your new book, Resilient, How to Grow an Unshakable Core of Calm, Strength, and Happiness, was was just released a couple of months ago. What led you to write this book on resilience at this time? Yeah, 
Well, the at this time part uh, that has to do with this time is that uh, many, 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 many people are experiencing a sense related to broad forces, uh, political, economic, cultural, global, uh, local, in which they feel shaken or rattled or um, pushed around by. And so I especially felt it was timely to uh, focus on how to build up from the inside out, literally grounded in your body, in the, as the subtitle puts it, an unshakable core of calm, strength, and happiness. That's sort of the immediately relevant reason, uh, in, including related to the fact that uh, it doesn't look like the cavalry is coming. It doesn't look like rescue is coming or help is coming from, much help at least, is coming from the outside in. So we need to grow strengths from the inside out. That was mm-hmm. the really immediate reason. The, the deeper, most fundamental reason is that, totally distinct from you know the ebbs and flows of current events, we all need to grow this unshakable core, both to recover from the really horrible things in life, but, but more frequently to tap into resources inside we can use to keep on going no matter what uh, yeah. in the face of difficulty. And as someone who's had a longstanding interest in the upper reaches of human potential, and as you have as well, obviously, and as someone who's interested in, in lasting well-being, how do you have lasting well-being in a changing world? You have to have resilience. And um, at the deepest level, last, uh, for me, this was an inquiry into the deeply Buddhist uh, notion, which is shared, of course, with the great yogic traditions that you know well, the notion of equanimity, not a coldness inside or a numbness or inertness inside, but the capacity, as it said in the Buddha Dharma, to walk evenly over uneven ground. How do you grow that inside yourself as a support for the other uh, wonderful ways of being in this life, such as compassion, kindness, and happiness for the welfare of others. So that's what the book's about, written for a completely general audience, you know, really cut to the chase, boil it down. Here's almost everything I've ever learned about personal growth, clinical psychology, and spiritual practice over 40-plus years. Here you go. So that's what that book's about. I, I love your grounding it in the practice of equanimity because I, I do think that's so important. And one of the things that's very frustrating, of course, about, you know, being involved with um, things in the outer world that are not how we might wish them to be, whatever that is, you know, at work or in a relationship or whatever. Lots of times we, you know, we may not have as much control over it as we'd like. And this is a way of really, um, you know, drawing it back in and sort of, you know, putting your stake in the ground where you are and developing these inner practices, you know, that that you can call on regardless of things that are in the outer world that may be outside your control. Yeah, it's really interesting that, uh, so I, I, you know, as I've gotten older, I've been reflecting a bit more about sort of my life and, and the lives before me, including my parents, and so just thinking uh, really uh, about my dad, for example, as well as my mother. My dad was born on a ranch in North Dakota in 1918. My mother was uh, born uh, into uh, basically genteel poverty in early, in about 1924 or something. Her mother's family had lost everything in the Great Depression. And... Um, well, my mother's mother soon became a single mother, uh, so there were a lot of difficulty. And one of the threads running through their story and kind of into my own personal culture was the importance of self-reliance, that uh, it's it's really kind of old school, you know, to, 
to dig deep and to, to grow things inside yourself that you can tap into. And then at the other end of the range, we have uh, the final teaching of the Buddha, um, in which he basically says, uh, I'm not going to do it for you. You need to do your own work. Now, your own work may be turning toward the ultimate and then letting the ultimate do its work. Uh, but it, but minimally, um, you have your own karmas, you have your own efforts, uh, you can love others, and meanwhile, you need to do your own work. And so both of those coming together, you know, really old school, Reader's Digest, North Dakota, Boy Scout stuff, kind of. Uh, and then we have this, woo, really profound upper reaches of human possibility coming together at this notion of how do we grow? How do we cultivate bhavana? How do we do neurobhavana? How do we cultivate resources inside that we can tap into every day for patience, for happiness, for coping, for skillfulness, uh, for insight and wisdom? So that's what. The, that, the vision of that has really captured me and, and engaged me, and I think it's really relevant to many, many people. Mm, well, that's that's really great. The other thing I wanted to ask you about is I, I notice on the front, you know, mm-hmm. you are sharing this book credit with your son. And so yeah. I was wondering, what was it like to write this book with your son? I don't think you guys have written together before. Not in any real way. And anytime you do, uh, you know, a family business or you do business with a friend, let alone your your child or your parent, uh, it's a risky business. Uh, and that said, uh, Forrest was magnificent. Uh, he he was uh, helpful. He stayed calm. Uh, we worked out, you know, disagreements about how the tech should flow. He made an enormous contribution. He was deeply touching. And uh, as has not escaped his awareness, it was a way for me to kind of, you know, in a sense, um, set it up so that he was required to engage a lot of really pretty powerful uh, psychological uh, and one could even say spiritual material. So I had a kind of covert agenda. <laughs> I admit it publicly to draw, to draw him in. And we've stayed friends, which was really wonderful. And, and it was just great. At the end of the day, it was great. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So getting back to resilience. So, yeah. Um, what, when we say resilience, and maybe people have a sense of it, but, but let's take a minute there. So what is resilience? And, and we've already sort of talked about why, you know, why it's yeah. important to, you know, to develop it. Yeah. Um, well, simply put, resilience uh, is a collect, is, basically it's a collection of capabilities and tendencies uh, inside ourselves that enable us to deal with disappointment, frustration, delayed gratification, loss, uh, and and both both in terms of events outside us, and especially our own bubbling up reactions. You know, how do you be resilient in the face of your own anger, or anxiety, or hurt, or sadness, or health issues, or physical pain, or um, feeling wounded or hurt or let down by other people because you were or the long shadow cast by your own childhood. How do, we, how do we be resilient? How do we keep on going? How do we find uh, a stable core of well-being even when things are really difficult? That's not about overlooking the negative or you know, doing a spiritual bypass in relationship to it, as it is said. None of that. How do we, how do we actually do that? And that's what's deeply interesting. You know, it's easy to be happy when you're in a hammock at the end of, you know, Sunday afternoon and someone's rubbing your feet and another person is <laughs> brushing your hair and whispering in your ear. And, hey, that's easy. But how do, you, how do you maintain that core of well-being just moving through your day, 
let alone dealing with major hard things in life, including what we face as, as we age, we lose people we care about, um, unexpected things come our way, uh, and we, you know, gradually uh, head toward uh, the last uh, year and then the last day of our life. How do we tap into resource, you know, resources inside to be able to cope? That's what resilience enables us to do. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you, you spend a, a lot of time in the book talking about um, some of those um, Inner, inner resources, inner strengths, grit, gratitude, and compassion. So how do how does having those inner strengths support us in developing resilience? Yeah, uh, to kind of bring it down to earth, if you just sort of think about your day, three things basically, bottom line, shape the course of your day. You could even say the course of a meditation and certainly the course of a life. And these are ideas well-known in uh, health psychology and medicine. First is challenges, right? What wears on you from the outside in or the inside out? Second, vulnerabilities. What do those challenges get you through? What are the chinks in your armor? What, what, what makes you more susceptible, let's say, to being zapped by uh, an argument with a partner or um, a health worry? Uh, and then third, how do you cope? What do you tap into both to function, you know, behaviorally, to, like, interact with other people or stay organized or keep on going or manage a business or, or do your job? And also, in particular, how, um, how, what kind of resources do you draw upon to manage your own internal reactions, your thoughts, your feelings, your sensations, um, and, and grow increasingly um, kind of a sanctuary inside yourself of contentment and inner peace? If it's meaningful for someone, and I bet it is, I know it is for you, and I bet it is for many of your listeners, how do you um, become increasingly permeable, let's say, to the ultimate? Uh, how do you do those kind of practices? Well, you have to draw upon various factors uh, that are resources inside yourself, such as, as you named, grit, gratitude, and so forth. Other factors include a warm heart, compassion, uh, the capacity to steady your mind, to sustain mindful attention, even to the point of dropping into deep states of absorption. You need to have know-how about other people. Uh, You need to have the capacity to motivate yourself and keep on going. Courage. These are some of the many major, you know, chapter titles actually in the book. And I would argue, and maybe this is where we're going, I think the strength of strengths is knowing how to help yourself grow each day because that's the strength that gives you the other strengths. Uh, We can't do anything about the past. And frankly, the instant that the present has congealed into actuality, here it is. You know, can't do anything. There it is. Here it is, right. now, now, and now. But what we can do is continually influence who we are becoming. And that's where some of the recent science of how your body changes for the better, especially your brain, the, the seed of personal development, uh, is very, very relevant for people. Mm-hmm. So one of the chapters, one of the early chapters that you have is on uh, compassion. And you particularly talk about self-compassion. Um, you define compassion as the recognition of pain with a desire to relieve it. Yeah. And I, I really I really appreciate that definition. I also love the Rabbi Hillel quote that begins that uh, chapter. Yeah. If I'm not for myself, then who will be for me? Yeah. If not now, when? I think that is just so, that is just such two such beautiful questions. Yeah. So 
self-compassion is an active area of research and many benefits have been shown from this practice. But people find this really hard. Um, uh, I think if you right. think about you know, you yourself can. making a mistake or doing something that you don't like, and you imagine a friend doing that same thing, I think a lot of people would not have any problem being compassionate for a friend. Whereas mm. when it's ourselves, we're often much harder on ourselves than we would be yeah. even on a, on, a, on a close friend. So why do you think it's so hard for us to have compassion for ourselves? I think part of the answer lies out in our culture, uh, distinct from some other cultures like, uh, say, in Bhutan or, you know, uh, other places. Uh, I think Westerners and especially Americans um, do a lot of social comparison, uh, whether it's on Facebook or TV or just in your neighborhood. And there's a kind of tendency towards striving and um, feeling like you're falling short. So those are that's where some of the answers are, I think. But then internally, uh, and I can say this as a psychologist, we internalize uh, what other people do to us or what we see around us. And if we grew up in an environment that was critical, uh, in which there was pressure around performance, uh, it's natural to internalize that kind of criticism and pressure and then do it to ourselves. Or another version of that, if we grew up in settings with a, and when I say settings, I include parents, siblings, and peers, don't forget peers, in which uh, we're sort of dismissed or not seen, or if we reveal so-called weakness or neediness or vulnerabilities, they're, they're shamed uh, and certainly not responded to. There are two. We internalize that dismissive attitude. So if you think of it, um, many, many people, be included, have had a, a pretty a critical, pushy, and dismissive attitude toward themselves, which they don't apply toward other people, as you point out, interestingly. And so self-compassion, which is simply the uh, application of compassion to oneself, uh, a, a kind of a encouraging, tender, nurturing, uh, just and when I say just, I mean in terms of justice, a fair recognition of one's burdens and what one is dealing with, with a, with a kind of supportive feeling behind it. Research has shown, as you were getting at, that that stands toward oneself, which has both kind of a muscular quality of being on your own side. It also has a certain conceptual aspect in which you recognize our, our common humanity. Of course you feel bad about that, let's say, but especially it has an emotional dimension of awe, oh, you know, not like, oh, you know, wine, 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 self-pity, wine, wine, wine. No, it's more like what we would have for other people, like a mmm. Support and oh yeah, I get it. Oh, I wish, I wish you would not suffer. I wish this pain would pass. I wish you find could find peace with the pain you're stuck with. Um, I I really wish uh, things would go well for you with kindness and other feelings mixed in. Anyway, research shows that that actually helps people be stronger, tougher, mm-hmm. more resilient, more able to bounce back, more able to keep going, uh, more able to manage things with other people, and also actually. Even in a Fortune 500 kind of framework, uh, self-compassion helps top performers become be more ambitious, more willing to take a swing, you know, at the home run fences. Because if you've got a lot of self-compassion inside, you're not so vulnerable to self-criticism if things don't go perfectly well. So you're more willing to take the kind of risks that are necessary, sensible risks that are necessary for for the highest levels of aspiration and ambition. Mm-hmm. Pretty good. Yeah, yeah, uh, definitely. So in your description, I was also hearing 
this this um, uh, negativity bias, you know, that we have. So let's talk about that for a minute. Um, I know you've talked about this in previous books as well, and I thought this was just really important for under to understand because it really it is something that's baked into our our nervous system. So um, in about two minutes, yeah, I know uh, we're coming on what a is, break. Yeah, I'll what be quick. is negativity bias and and why is it important for us to understand it? Yeah, the short version is we all know it from the inside. You've got a friend or a partner, a coworker. Ten things happen in that relationship today. Nine are positive, one's negative. What's the one you obsess about as you're falling asleep, right? It's the one that's negative. And um, the roots of this are in our uh, biological evolution. I think it's really important to grind to ground mind in life. And over the course of evolution, uh, our ancestors really needed to pay attention to predators, aggression inside their bands, or hazards of various kinds. They needed to check out where the food was, but if you missed it today, you'd have a chance at it tomorrow. But if you missed that predator today, whack, no more food forever. So today, we routinely scan for bad news, over-focus on it, over-react to it, over-remember it, and then last, we become increasingly sensitized to it. That's the natural design of the brain. It's useful in the Serengeti Plains in Jurassic Park and maybe in a war zone today or a family that feels like a war zone. But for most people, it creates unnecessary suffering and as well as conflict with others. And so to compensate for it, as well as for more general purposes, it's really important to recognize good facts, help them become good feelings, that third, you really, really take into yourself. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. And we are going to really focus more on some of these exercises in the second half of the program. Um, but I did want to just, you know, lay the groundwork for that. I think it's so interesting that that is that that is built in. And I think you've described it as our, you know, nervous systems are like, what is it? Uh, Teflon Velcro for the for good. bad and Teflon for the good. Yes, Velcro, Velcro for the bad. I mean, that's such a great description. And all of us, I think, can relate to that as you're falling asleep. What's the one thing that worries you about your day? It's that, you know, it's that, um, uh, it's it's not a positive thing. <laughs> so that's yeah. the one bad thing that happened all day. And you, we kind of ignore all of the great things that happen. And with that, we've come to the break. You're listening to the Yoga Hour with special guest Rick Hansen, psychologist, teacher, and author of several books, including the book we are discussing today, Resilient. You can find out more about Rick's work at rickhansen.net, and Hansen is with an O, rickhansen.net. We welcome your comments and questions. You can contact us at yogahour at unity.fm. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, co-host of the Yoga Hour. When we come back from the break, we'll explore more about how to develop resistance. We'll be right back. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. Welcome to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Unity Online Radio is bringing the message of unity to thousands of spiritual seekers around the world. 
If you enjoy our programming, we invite you to support it by visiting unityonlineradio.org and clicking on Donate Now. Help us continue to provide inspiring content to everyone. Thank you for your support. Great teachers through the ages have spoken of the importance of our mind and of being master over our thoughts. How often do we forget that we are the ones who decide what thoughts we'll hold and what thoughts we'll reject? The world's great teachers also remind us that our thoughts create our experience. We may not be able to change what is happening in our world, but we can always choose how we will respond to the changing situations of our lives. With a positive attitude, your chance for success in any situation can be greater. That's because a positive attitude will inspire you to look for workable solutions rather than allowing negative thinking to limit your decision-making. This law of life is brought to you by Unity. To find a Unity Church near you, visit www.unity.org. Since 1924, Daily Word has offered inspiration and practical teachings through daily prayer messages to help people of all faiths live happy, healthy lives. The magazine includes two months of daily affirmations, messages, articles, and spiritual poetry to help you get inspired. Subscriptions are available for print editions in large type and Spanish, as well as the digital subscription package that includes the online magazine with audio, smartphone app, and daily email. Get your subscription today. Visit dailyword.com or unity.org. If you've been on a spiritual path for a long time, what can you read that's new and exciting? Try Unity Magazine. It's designed for the seasoned spiritual student with in-depth articles and interviews about spiritual practices and philosophies. Our columnists share their own faith journeys and cover healing, science, and psychology with even a little scripture thrown in. You'll read some classic authors and some new ones. Get a free trial issue at unitymagazine.org. Discover new ways to heal yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually with Michael Schwartz and Spiritual Naturopathy. Every Monday at 12 p.m. Central, Michael offers a holistic path to healing and guides listeners to new levels of self-awareness, touching on topics like intuition, healing by faith, dream interpretation, and a lot more. Michael explores how to maximize our spiritual gifts and helps us discover how much healing power we really have. Call in with your questions and comments every Monday here on Unity Online Radio. Call now with your question or comment. 816-251-3555. That's 816-251-3555. You're listening to The Yoga Hour, Living the Eternal Way with your host, Yogacharya, Ellen Grace O'Brien. Welcome back to The Yoga Hour. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, co-host of The Yoga Hour, with my guest today, Rick Hansen, who is a psychologist, senior fellow of the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley, and the author of several books, including Resilient, How to Grow an Unshakable Core of Calm, Strength, and Happiness. So, Rick, I, I really liked your comparison in the book of uh, comparing the mind to a garden and your mm. description of the three ways to tend our mental garden, to observe it, to pull weeds, and to plant flowers. Right. So, this this focus of being conscious gardeners 
uses the core Kriya practices of self-study and self-discipline. But So would you tell us a little bit more about this? Describe these three ways to tend the mind, which you list in the book as let be, let go, and let in. Yeah. Well, I think it, first of all, gives a person a framework for how to skillfully engage your mind. And I think the most fundamental of these is the first one, in which we simply let be. We experience the experience, feel the feelings, hopefully in a skillful way in which we're aware of them in a field of spacious awareness rather than being identified with the reactions or hijacked by them. If we're identified with them or hijacked by them, that reinforces them in the brain, literally, uh, turbocharged by the negativity bias. But it's, it's okay to experience the pain. I'm not talking about turning away from what's uncomfortable or difficult, but what's the, our relationship to it? Can we hold it in a field of, of awareness? And, and sometimes, if it's useful, sense down into what's deeper, younger, more vulnerable, and so forth. Well, that's being with what's there. On the other hand, uh, it's not the only way to practice, and I think it's gotten way overvalued as Eastern traditions have come to the West in, particularly in certain quarters. I've known people who are fairly dogmatic with that. All you need to do and all you should do is witness the stream of consciousness. Uh, well, uh, the Buddha and others have taught there's a place for wise effort for working with the mind, which has two aspects, the prevention, uh, decrease, or just utter release of what's painful or harmful for yourself and others, and then cultivation, the development, the learning, the growing, the um, acquiring uh, of wonderful qualities of warm-heartedness, compassion, kindness, insight, grit, resilience, uh, insight, and so forth. So that's the big picture, and that little uh, map gives us a sequence often to follow when we're upset about something. You know, we start by being with what's there and, uh and then at some moment it feels like, okay, 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 time to exhale, time to release, let the tension flow out of the body, vent the feelings, drop the thoughts that aren't helpful, release the uh, unwholesome desires, problematic desires, and then also replace what we've released. Because as any gardener knows, if you don't um, replace the weeds with flowers, the weeds come back. So that gives us a kind of a sequence, you know, and, and uh, I keep returning to that structure again and again. And it also is a way to frame my own personal focus, particularly, which is on the cultivation aspect. How do you grow the good inside yourself in your, in your being and in your life? How do you actually do that? But that process of cultivation it's not about chasing pleasure. It's not about trying to deny pain. It's not adopting a mechanistic fix-it attitude toward your mind. It's, it's grounded in the, the larger framework of let be and let go and then let in. And also it recognizes that to be able to be with our experience, especially if it's intense or challenging or seductive, we need to grow resources inside ourselves so that we can tolerate our pain. Otherwise, for many people opening uh, the trapdoor to your own innards is like opening a trapdoor to hell. They're not resourced enough to go in there. Uh, so it all works together. Anyway, that's, mm-hmm. that, that's the framework. Yeah, I like the phrasing of let be, let go, and let in, but it, what really struck me is the garden metaphor because I think it's easier to remember. You know, yeah, so yeah, and I love gardens. What can you, know, what can you do in a garden? Right it's like yeah, you can, yeah. you know, you can observe the garden. You can yeah. pull weeds. You can plant flowers. So I, I thought that was yeah. a great, you know, a great, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, kind of mnemonic. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. It's easy to remember, that. and uh, know where you're strong, like me. 
I had to, I was really good at uh, kind of fix it, you know, maybe not coincidentally, uh, you know, for a variety of reasons, but I had to learn to let be. I had to learn to be with it, to really feel my feelings. On the other hand, I think a lot of people, especially a lot of meditators, get stuck there. They're really good at witnessing the stream of consciousness, but the same flotsam and jetsam is continuing to keep rolling along. That's right. Yeah, and as you mentioned, there, you know, there is um, reference to this in, you know, in Buddhist literature and also in the yoga literature and the Yoga Sutra, Sutras of Patanjali. One of the sutras is uh, when the mind is disturbed by negative thoughts, one should dwell on their opposites. So, yeah. you know, it's it's everywhere. One of the yes, things that's that exactly I, right. Uh, and a key, a key, if I could just kind of make a key distinction here, sure. which is one I see a million times as a uh, therapist, as a meditation teacher, as a, as a person, just dwelling, which is to say just experiencing something, may be momentarily useful, but in and of itself, it has no lasting value in the sense of internalization. Experiencing does not equal learning uh, from a literally a neurological, neuropsychological standpoint. Uh, what's really important is to use, as Patanjali, who I just, I love the Yoga Sutras, as Patanjali points out, as we dwell in a state of being, which may well be the opposite of, you know, what's been troubling us, as we rest our attention there and through mindfulness training and so forth, we are able to stabilize our attention on, let's say, a sense of uh, genuine forgiveness as we grapple with something we're resentful about. Uh, as we dwell there, it's really important to help that experience sink in and literally, literally, be converted into a physical change in neural structure or function. Otherwise, we don't become, we don't acquire trait gratitude or trait mindfulness or trait love or trait resilience or trait forgiveness. We need to convert those states to traits. Otherwise, they wash through the brain like water through a sieve. So, mm -hmm. I, you know, just in, can, very consistent with what you're saying here, uh, Laurel, I kind of ask myself a question, these two questions um, routinely, and I ask others, you know, where do you dwell and what's in your heart? And what's important is to help where you dwell enter your heart so you carry it with you more and more, which then helps you dwell uh, there more often, including in the face of challenges. Mm -hmm. Well, this really, you know, brings us to the um, to the heal process. Mm, um, yeah. Uh, so so let's go there. I was going to do refuge first, but we'll do that second. So um, you you created a guide, um, which you've written about in, in prior books, uh, to support us in the structure-building process of our brains. And this is one of the things I really appreciate about your work, is you really are drawing on these cutting-edge neuroscience ideas like neuroplasticity, which is basically yeah. that, you know, that we can rewire the brain, literally. You can rewire yeah. the brain, and it's been shown, you know, now, you know, over and over again that these practices can help do that. So um, you made a, a, a um, an acronym uh, of mm -hmm. HEAL uh, for the practice. So let's let's just talk that through. So what are the steps of HEAL? Yeah, the, well, the, the point here is what, it, it's helpful for people to kind of bring it down to earth. You think about your day or you think about your longings or aspirations. What would be good to have more of inside yourself? More happiness, more love? more stability of inner peace, 
more continuity of uh, a felt sense of the divine, uh, more skillfulness in managing tricky conversations, more confidence in uh, speaking up at work or asking for what you need in your family or more ease with uh, the residues from a difficult childhood, whatever it might be. What would you like to grow inside yourself? And then if you want to grow it inside yourself, now we're really with how does the brain change for the better fundamentally, and uh, it does so in a two-step process. Step one, you must experience what you want to grow or related factors. It's very embodied. It's very felt and experiential. Second, if you want to help that experience in which you dwell, become a lasting change inside yourself, bit by bit, drop by drop, synapse by synapse, those little connections between neurons, uh, you it, it must focus on it and stay with it and um, really help it become a part of yourself. So that's a fundamental idea. And then I very briefly um, sort of um, summarize it in the fundamental process of the, the essence of the change process, of growing, of learning, of healing. The essence of it uh, can be summarized in this acronym HEAL, H-E-A-L, in which the first step is to have the beneficial experience, typically because you're already having it, sometimes because you self-generate it, maybe through a meditative practice, such as you led us through, Laurel, in the very beginning. And then once you have that song playing in your inner iPod, it's important to turn on the recorder. And that then relates to the remainder of the HEAL acronym, the so-called uh, internalization phase, or geek that I am, I call it the installation phase. E for enrich it, help the experience last, help it be big, help yourself feel it in your body. And then A, absorb it. Feel like it's sinking into yourself, um, intend that it sink in, uh, which will really help its internalization. And then the optional step, L, is for link in which if a person wants to, it can be very useful to be aware of both beneficial experiences or mental material, of feeling, a sensation, an idea, let's say, alongside negative material that uh, is sort of matched to it, going back to what Patanjali said about the opposites. And the key there is to keep the positive material big in the foreground of awareness with the negative material off to the side so that naturally the positive will gradually soothe and even replace the negative material. That's mm -hmm. the overview. The essence is really simple. Have it. Enjoy it. Um, help yourself. Have the experiences that are really useful for you, beneficial for you, that your heart, including the ones that your heart really longs for. And then as you're having those experiences, enjoy them. Stay with them. Feel them in your body. Focus on what's rewarding about them, and they will increasingly become the new habit of your heart. Mm. Oh, it's just really, really lovely. So as I mentioned, I was also struck by your <clears throat> practice of, of finding refuge. Ah, yeah. <clears throat> and I wanted to also, you know, uh, talk with you about that, you know, during this time together. So what does finding and knowing your refuges mean? Yeah. Well, I'm drawing on traditional ideas of sanctuary. Like if you just make it to the steps of the cathedral, the mob you know, won't, can't hurt you. Uh, or uh, the classic notion, certainly in Buddhism, of the three jewels, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, the sense of the teacher, the teaching, and the community of the taught. Uh, and so those are traditional notions, and one finds, of course, other forms of refuge uh, in other traditions. I also broaden it to... Uh, just kind of down-to-earth stuff, like think about the refuge a child finds um, in her mother's lap 
or the refuge it is to go for a walk with one's dog or read something inspirational or listen to you, Laurel. That's a refuge for many people, I'm sure. <laughs> or, um, from, you know, among other refuges, uh, and, and I say this as someone who's really deeply engaged in spiritual practice, for me, science is a refuge, just what's true, actually, you know, or uh, the sense of practice. I find that practice is a refuge, or the memory of places. For me, wilderness has been a very important refuge, both um, being in it, actually, and then recalling the feeling of being in it later. So these are various refuges, and it's what we need them, you know. It's uh, it's where we go. It's our pit stop in life, you know. It's our oasis in the desert. It's where we go for support. Uh, inspiration, um, refueling, protection, recovery. We all need refuges. And what's really nice is that through, uh, the, through experiencing a sense of a refuge of various kinds um, and then internalizing in the, using the heal process as I described, through internalizing, soaking up, that ex- marinating in, that experience of refuge, then increasingly you have your refuges inside you wherever you go. Uh, I think often people frame refuge as a dualistic um, outside oneself that one must go to, and, you know, there's a place for that. But I love the idea of coming from. What are the refuges you come from? Or what are the refuges that live through you as you? That um, takes the fruit as the path, as they say in Tibet, and um, gives you more of a feeling of, of being refuge as you move forward in life. Mm. Oh, that's really lovely. And and you I, I should have mentioned earlier, but the book is basically just um you know, every chapter has at least one or more um practices that you know people oh, can yeah. experience like, that. And you have uh, I mean there's a, a lot of practical on, stuff in that ahead. book. Yeah. What was that? Well, there's a lot of I'm agreeing with you. There's a lot of practical experiential stuff in the book. Yeah. Yeah. So to give people a sense of what that's like, um, can you lead us through your practice on taking refuge, which is on page sure. thirty of the book? Oh, it'll be a pleasure, and I'll give a kind of brief. This is radio, right? Um, yeah. And I should add that people can learn a lot more about this material experientially if they check out the online uh, program that this book is based on, the online program. It's called The Foundations of Well-Being. It's kind of a hour-a-week-ish, year-long journey of personal transformation. It really gets the fundamentals, and you can learn more about it on my website. And also, there are opportunities there to, for no charge, uh, to engage various experiential practices that give people more of a flavor of what that program's about, the foundations of well-being, and what the book's about, including things maybe related to refuge. So that's, that's a way to keep going or to build on what people experience right now. So I'll do a little practice here. It'll be less than three minutes, really kind of simple. Gives people sort of a feeling of this. So if I, if I may, I suggest that whoever's listening, um, and I'll do it along with you, bring to mind the feeling of something, a place, a person, an idea, um, a memory that for you helps you feel good, helps you feel... Uh, nurtured, uh, inspired, uh, maybe draws you into a sense of awe, comforted. So take a moment to bring something like that to mind. could be the feeling of just sort of sitting there on your sofa at the end of the day, the kids finally are in bed, um, and you're just sitting there with a cup of tea relaxing. Or maybe it's the feeling of doing yoga 
or doing a meditation, or it might be uh, the kind of a, an emotional memory uh, in, a, in a good sense of being at the ocean or in the mountains or in a temple, whatever is meaningful for you. So I'll pause for just a few seconds to give you a chance to collect yourself and, and get a feeling, an increasingly growing feeling or sense of what for you is a refuge. And then, as you help yourself have a growing sense of this refuge, uh, stay with the experience. Maybe visualize other aspects of it, uh, perhaps walking across a mountain meadow, uh, feeling your cat crawling into your lap and just sitting there contentedly as you stroke stroke her. Um, uh, maybe... Uh, you know, looking at pictures of your grandchildren on your refrigerator that bring a smile to you. Whatever it might be, stay with the experience, enriching it and absorbing it. And then if you want, um, you can offer little soft thoughts in your mind that can strengthen this experience, so literally you are um, weaving it increasingly into the fabric of your own nervous system. So you might say to yourself, I go for refuge to, and then fill in the blank. Uh, could be I go for refuge to the divine or a teacher or teaching, or I go for refuge to the redwoods, or I go for refuge to uh, the knowing of my grandchildren's love. Whatever it might be, say it like that. See what that feels like. I go for refuge to. Okay. And if you like, you can experiment with different forms of these soft thoughts, such as, I abide in refuge as, you know, I abide in refuge as uh, the feeling of yoga, or I abide in refuge as um, a sense of awe at the seashore, or I abide in refuge as um, the love uh, flowing out from my heart, or I abide in refuge as uh, the clarity about the way it really is that's available through various wisdom teachings. I'll be quiet again for a few moments as you explore this form, and then we'll finish up. Okay, and then finishing, uh, if you like, you might... Imagine yourself resting in refuge, as refuge, with even a sense of, uh, in a healthy way, being almost lived by this refuge or um, carried along by it or a sense of the refuge in, in your heart radiating outward, perhaps as waves of energy or love or light. Mm. All right, 
finishing up, knowing that you, uh, as you do these practices, you truly are literally bit by bit initiating a process of positive brain change that you will carry with you wherever you go, and you'll be able to increasingly tap into this sense of refuge uh, to draw upon it for everyday happiness and to help you keep on going when the going gets tough. Mm. Oh, that was that was really lovely. I enjoyed that. Right. So um, in the last couple of minutes, um, in addition to all the teaching and writing that you do, you also lead a weekly meditation group. Mm. And given that uh, meditation is such an important practice in yoga, I wanted to ask you, in your opinion, why is a regular meditation practice so important for us in developing resiliency? That's interesting. Uh, well, I have meditation in one form or another, and uh, the majority of the people in this world uh, who do anything contemplative any day do it in a religious framework. I mean, in America and the West, we're used to more secular forms, which are fine. But I just want to acknowledge that for many people, uh, they do meditation uh, as a variation of prayer in some way or in a larger framework. So that said, research shows that meditation is to the mind what aerobic exercise or just exercise, physical activity, is to physical health, is to the body. Uh, and as we meditate, multiple benefits come to us that have been very, very well documented at this point. Uh, there's a lot of overlap between different meditative practices, although there are some differences that have you know, different kinds of benefits, but it's like a lot of circles that overlap each other. And at their core, uh, what are you doing when you meditate? Uh, you're training attention uh, because you're staying with your object of attention rather than just wandering off. That's good can apply that for in all kinds of settings, including hanging in there in a difficult conversation with an, you know, a partner, a friend, or an in-law. Um, also, in meditation, we are dwelling in wholesome states of being, second after second, minute after minute, and in natural ways, kind of related to the thing in brain science that you know, Laurel, neurons that fire together, wire together. Right. So the longer we dwell in these wholesome experiences, including experiences of things that are uh, ultimate, um, as we and as well as other experiences of calming and warm-heartedness and relaxing and well-being, as we do that, um, we internalize those states increasingly into ourselves, and they become traits inside of ourselves. Mm. And, the last thing and I, with yeah, that. Unbelievably, we've come to the end of our time together. Well, that's um, a good illustration of everything we've been talking about, so it's a good yeah. place to end. <laughs> You've been listening to The Yoga Hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, co-host of The Yoga Hour, and we've been discussing how to be resilient with our special guest, Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a meditation teacher and the author of several books, including the New York Times bestseller, Hardwiring Happiness, and the book we've been talking about today, Resilient, How to Grow an Unshakable Core of Calm, Strength, and Happiness. You can find out more about Rick and the many programs he offers at his website, rickhanson.net. And again, Hanson was with an O, H-A-N-S-O-N, rickhanson.net. You can enjoy other Yoga Hour programs where Rick Hansen has been our guest by going to unity.fm slash the yoga hour. He was with us on June 12th, 2014 and May 9th, 2013. Once again, thank you so much, Rick Hansen, for joining us.
Wonderful. Thank you, Laurel. Join us next week when we're offering an encore of the program, Creating Meaningful Connections That Support Our Well-Being, with um, guest Michael J. Gelb, author of the book, The Art of Connection. The Yoga Hour is a service project of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a meditation center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. CSE welcomes people from all backgrounds who are seeking self and God realization, a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. For more information about the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, visit csecenter.org. Remember to subscribe to the Yoga Hour podcast at iTunes or Stitcher. And if you're enjoying the podcast, share it with a friend. Thank you to the Yoga Hour team, regular host, founder and director of the Yoga Hour, Yogacharya O'Brien, assistant producers Ann Hayes and Sean Smith, Jeff Comfort, and Louie in the sound booth at unity.fm. I look forward to being with you again while Yogacharya O'Brien is away. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all that you need. Bye now. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Sometimes you feel so alone and overwhelmed, you don't know where to turn. These days, it seems like there is no end to our problems. We invite you to connect with Silent Unity, the 24-hour prayer ministry where someone is waiting to pray with you right now. Since 1890, Silent Unity has always been there. No judgment or dogma, just someone affirming the best for you. Call 816-969-2000 today. You can also connect online at unityprayervigil.org.